and offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Intense opening lines. So if you were with us last week and John uh, mentioned, 1 Samuel comes on the heels of Judges. Are you, we would say that the book of 1 Samuel and its opening pages is around the same time as Judges. And if we know anything about Judges, it was a time where everything was messed up. What was supposed to be was not, and things were just wrong. And Pastor John talked about Hannah's prayer, and we see words like the arrogant, the proud, the wicked, the adversaries, they're being broken down, cut off, thrown into the darkness. And so with that context, we come into these first words after Hannah's prayer, and you would think maybe, oh, this is going to be the Canaanites or the Philistines, right? People that are not God's people that are going to experience uh, some of these things mentioned in Hannah's prayer. But instead, what do we see? It's actually Israelites. And it's not just any Israelites. These are the priests of Israel, the ones that are supposed to be the most holy. And then it's not just any priests, but it's the sons of Eli. Now, the son, Eli was a descendant of Aaron. So Aaron, or Eli, is basically the high priest, and these are his sons. It's not just any priest, but it's the top of the top in terms of status. And these are people that are stealing sacrifices from God's people and essentially from the Lord. Sometimes they would take a three-pronged fork into a boiling cauldron and say, hey, this is mine now. Other times, they would actually go and take raw meat. They would take the fat. And the reason that's important is if we were to ever think back to Leviticus, because we've all memorized Leviticus by now probably, is that the fat was specifically meant for the Lord. So for them to come and say, well, I'm going to take the fat of the meat, they're explicitly taking the offering and the sacrifice that was for God. A funny way that a commentator put it, which I kind of liked, he said, even though priests were already allotted a portion of the sacrifice, Leviticus tells them, okay, you can have the right thigh and you can have this. Even though they're allotted a portion, we see Shiloh Forkman coming to stab for more, right? They want more and more. Their self-serving pleasure-seeking actions were of more importance than their self-sacrifice for God. Now, what's worse than all our, you know, it just continues to build. What's even worse is, they're taking it by force. It doesn't really matter what you say. These people with power and status who are meant to be representatives between God and his people are saying, if you don't do what I say, I will force you to do it. It's an explicit, egregious abuse of power. And their greed and lust for pleasure has led them to an all-out disregard for the Lord, his commands, and his people. It's so bad that after that, we see that the lay people, right, are telling them, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, Israel's kind of messed up in Judges, but even people who are not priests say, hey, let, let it burn first, then you can take what you want. 
even though you shouldn't do that either. But even the lay people are correcting the priests of Israel. So verse 17 kind of wraps it up for us, and it gets back to the question that we ask is, does God see injustice? And verse 17 says, yes, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sees injustice. And to add to that, we get a little window as to probably why, and that's where it says they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. Now that is a heart posture. So yes, they're acting in a certain way on the outside, but they have contempt for the Lord, which is a a belief that something's worthless, an an attitude or disposition that something's beneath you. You don't really really care about it. They're self-serving scoundrels of greed and serving themselves from the heart. But remember, despite this darkness, this evil, this abuse, we do see the first answer to our question. God does see injustice. I was texting John a couple days ago, and I thought about naming this section the priestly pigs or pigly priests, because, you know, alliteration in sermons is good, and they're like gluttonous, they're eating a lot, and I decided not to go with that. Self, self, or self-serving scoundrels is kind of the big idea for this section. But yesterday, what I thought about, if anyone watches any Miyazaki films, was Spirited Away. I don't know if kids, if you guys watched Spirited Away, or you did My Neighbor Totoro, um, Howl's Moving Castle, Kiki's Delivery Service. But in Spirited Away, we see Chichiro's parents go to this carnival booth in the beginning, right? And they start eating all this food. And they just keep eating and keep eating keep eating. And she eventually comes back to them and she finds what? It's not her parents, right? It's these nasty pigs who look totally different. Their greed has changed them. And in the same way, in the heart of these two priests, their lust for more and more, trying to fill an appetite, turns them into something horrid. Okay, so you might be saying, okay, I get it, Zach. I'm glad he sees injustice. But that can seem a bit absent. Okay, you see injustice, but does it really matter if he only sees it as like an abstract reality? Let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 22 to 25. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So if it wasn't bad enough that they're completely disregarding the Lord's sacrifices, It's just spiraling more and more out of control, where now we see that they're actually seducing women, sleeping with them at the tabernacle. And it's not just anyone, again, as we've said, these are people who are priests in the Lord's service. They are people that should be trusted. They have power and status, and yet they're abusing it for their own self-interests. Now, if we take a step back, and if you've grown up in the church, you're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. The first four talk about uh, proper worship of the Lord, having a heart that loves the Lord above everything else. And the last six have to do with loving your neighbor. And it's often pointed out that if you have a disoriented heart away from the Lord, that's turned away from the Lord, it will 
eventually lead to loving something not just more than the Lord, but more than your neighbor. So if you are a self-serving scoundrel who has contempt for the Lord, this will turn out to be a self-serving scoundrel who has disregard for people made in his image. The idolatry and the injustice always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. And we actually see that at the end of Judges, which remember 1 Samuel is coming on the heels of Judges. The last few chapters of Judges, we see chapters I think, 17, 18, they have this really messed up idol worship in Israel. And it's like, whoa, this is totally different than the way it should be. And then right after that, verses, or chapters 19 and 20, we see this gruesome, wicked mistreatment of a woman of Israel. The heart that worships self over creator will be a heart that worships self over God's creatures. And idolatry and justice will always go together. So these self-serving scoundrels have a posture that says the good life is about filling my desires for food, power, sex, pleasure, and it ultimately wreaks havoc on everyone they come in contact with. So these were dark times for Israel. Leaders that Israel should have been able to count on were untrustworthy, and they were abusing their power and status. And word gets out. Everyone knows about it, which is why the father comes in in verse 23, 24, 25. And it at, looks good at first, right? We're like, oh, yeah, good. Father's actually saying something to them, like, what are you doing? But what at first seems like, you know, good, a good rebuke, if we, if we stare at the text for a little bit, we actually see a big problem. The first is that the only recorded rebuke of Eli is when he's very old. The kids have probably been doing this for a while. Everyone knows what's going on. But the second thing, and what's worse, is that all he does is rebuke him, rebuke them. This is Eli, the high priest. There's no one else above Eli that Israel can go to to fix this problem or to outcry what's going on. But instead of removing his sons from a position of status and power. He just like slaps them on the wrist. Hey, stop. This is evil. People are finding out what you're doing. He actually doesn't act against the wickedness in a way that would be appropriate. And sadly, I think in many times, we see that in the world today. And some of us have even experienced that. The powerlessness where the people that should be doing something aren't. But to get to that question of does God just see injustice or is it more, Eli does help us out. He says, sons, if you sin against God, who can intercede for you? So in other words, God does not just see injustice. He doesn't just accept it as an abstract reality. But Eli is saying here that, humanly speaking, he is actually experiencing being sinned against. God is experiencing the sin of humanity as a sin against him. It's a slap in the face to steal sacrifices from his people, which are really for the Lord, to sin against the women of Israel in such an egregious way is actually a sin against God. So I think this is a great answer. God sees sin, and he also feels the effects of it. But that doesn't just totally fix everything, right? Because then the next rebuttal is, okay, well, I'm glad he sees sin. I'm glad he, you know, experiences sin, can sit in that darkness with me. I'm glad he can be present with me, but if he was truly good, truly powerful, truly loving, why doesn't he do anything about it? Why is he just sitting here with me? So let's keep reading. Let's see what happened in verses 27 to 36. 
there came a man of God of Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? If I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father would go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength, the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for pieces of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Quite an extensive judgment from God. And to break that up, we see basically the first two verses, like all the blessings that God's given to Eli's forefathers. Verse 29, we see the accusation of sin. And then verses 30 to 36 is the judgment. He is acting. But let's focus on verse 29 for a second. We kind of thought Eli wasn't that great a few verses ago. Now we get the truth. He fattens himself on the sacrifices that his sons are getting. He's honoring his sons, his family, more than the Lord. But the Lord's not going to have any of it. All right, what we see here is that the Lord's judgment will come. And I love the cohesion of the passage, right, where at the beginning we see they're fattening themselves on whatever they want to eat. But what's the curse? The curse is that they're going to be not only not living for a long time, they're going to die, but the ancestors will be begging even just for a piece of bread, The point is, again, we see God does act. He's a just God that acts to eradicate the injustice among his people and an injustice that affects his people. So God will lay down his word of judgment. He will execute judgment against those who claim to be representatives in God's holy place, yet abuse it for their power, privilege, and selfish gain. But he doesn't just leave that empty space void, right? It's great that he's acting, but what's going to fill it? In the promise of verse 35, he will replace the faithless priest with a faithful priest. And that is the joy that comes in the midst of this judgment. It brings about justice and a restoring of the way things should be. And so kind of an aside here, a big barrier to the Christian faith, if anyone who asks questions about their faith, um, even if you've grown up in the church, there's that idea of the word judgment, um, a God that sends people to hell, and that, that can be a roadblock 
But I would say this story here is an example of the need for judgment. See, if God decided not to act against the two evil priests, to let them have their way to do whatever they wanted to the people of Israel, that would be evidence actually of an evil God or an unloving God. The judgment brings justice, which I think we all would agree we want to live in a world where justice is real and possible and actually happens. The second thing, and this kind of leads me to my last question, another hiccup with, okay, it's great that he sees justice. It's great that he um, feels the weight of injustice himself. It's great that he bring up justice. There we go. But an even deeper question would be this then. If he's going to act to stop injustice, why didn't he act sooner? Why is he waiting to act? Spoiler alert, Hophni and Phinehas don't die till chapter 4. And that's when they say Eli is so old he can't even see. Why is God waiting to act against these egregious sins, the idolatry and the injustice? Now, that's an honest question, and here's the honest answer. God's timing is a mystery. We don't know why he... Why did he even let Hophni and Phinehas be born if this was going to happen? But let me try and flesh that out a little bit more than leaving it there. In God's story, his acts of grace and salvation are often over a period of time, and they are graces that grow into something more than we could have imagined. And let me point this out and be clear. I did not say he's not acting. I said we don't know the, understand the timing of his acting, but he's not just sitting and not acting. He is acting. So let's read, going back. I skipped around if you noticed a couple verses, but the passage for today was supposed to start in verse 11. We started in verse 12. So let's start with verse 11 here. Elkanah went home to Ramah, that's Samuel's mom, I mean, or dad, and the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Then we get all the idolatry. Let's go to verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. The ephod was what the priests were to wear to minister before the Lord. Then verse 21, right before we go into the sexual immorality of Hophni and Phinehas. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Then verse 26, right after all the immorality of uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the boy Samuel continued to grow in, in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then at the end of the judgment, at the end of the curse, a little bit of a spoiler for next week, the first verse of chapter 3, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. One commentator put it this way, These are the hints of hope that God is providing for his people. It's like God is whispering, don't forget about Samuel. Samuel's at Shiloh too, and that is Yahweh's manner, quietly providing for the next moment, even in the midst of the darkest moment. He quietly provides for the next moment, even in the midst of the darkest moment. So in the midst of all the depravity, 
Of all the darkness of the priests of Shiloh, there was a boy walking around Shiloh that was growing and ministering before the Lord, growing in stature and in favor before the Lord and men. Now, what ends up happening to Samuel is a cliffhanger for future weeks. But the point is this, God is acting. We just might not see it. Israel didn't know that, first of all, Samuel was in the temple. They didn't really know or care who Samuel was. We didn't know what his role was going to be. But God was raising Samuel up in the midst of Israel wondering, why are these priests still here? What are they doing? Why isn't God acting? God was acting, even if they didn't see it. And even if we don't understand the timing. Now, I think this idea of a slow process, there was a writer that wrote about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think a lot of kids, hopefully, have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Even not kids. This book's been around for 75 years. Hopefully, a lot of people here have read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's a really great book. And he gets this idea of the timing and the brilliancy of how the story rolls out. And so this writer points out, okay, the name, Lion, Witch, Wardrobe. What do we get in chapter one? We get introduced to the wardrobe, this magical wardrobe. Then we go to chapter two. What do we get introduced to? We get introduced to the witch. And then chapter three, what do we get introduced to? Not the lion. Nothing happens. I mean, stuff happens, right? But you would think, okay, we got, the, we got the wardrobe down, we got the witch down, and, oh, no lion. What's going on? It's not until chapter seven that there's a little teaser, right, where the kids see something moving in the bushes, and they say it has whiskers, and it's an animal trying to not be seen. So you're like, oh, this is probably the lion. The lion's going to come out. But it's not the lion. What's the animal that they see? Rosie. Beaver. Awesome. So the beaver comes out, and the beaver says this famous line in the conversation with the kids. They say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. Now, we don't know what Aslan is. Okay, Aslan, but we don't say that Aslan's a lion yet. And it's a very curious thing that happens. None of the children knew who Aslan was, but the moment the beaver spoke these words, everything felt different. In the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. But that's still, we still don't know the lion yet. In chapter 8, we get the next well-known conversation. Who is this Aslan? And Lucy asks, is he a man? And Beaver says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's king of the woods, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know the king of the beasts? He's a lion. The lion, the great lion. And later on, Lucy says, is he safe? And... Sorry, just thinking about everything this past week. She said, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's king. And the writer points out in C.S. Lewis's brilliance, he's not creating anything new to be imaginative or to sell books. He's just retelling the true story of reality, of life. We don't always understand the Lord's timing. Narnia 
points to this slow unraveling, but the joy that comes, the goodness that we see that gets rolled out is more than we could have expected. And of course, Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, executes judgment and wrath upon people because he loves his people too much to sit back. He's not safe, but he is good and he's king. And as king, he has the power to fix what has been broken. The hints of hope pop up in Narnia before we meet Aslan, not even until chapter 12. And hints of hope are here in this story of Samuel growing before the Lord in the midst of the darkness and depravity that we see at the tabernacle. Israel didn't know what God was doing, but he was working. And so three super quick applications. Number one, if you are being sinned against, if you've been sinned against, if you were just simply in a dark valley, maybe you're not being sinned against, but obviously we have deep, dark valleys of grief as we're even experiencing this week. God is on the move. And in the midst of the darkness, the valley to the depravity, God is working to bring light and joy, even though we might not fully understand his timing and how the pieces fit. Secondly, judgment and accountability is a good thing. This story and the experience of those who have been hurt by the church, who are even here today, the evidence is the importance of things like judgment, church discipline. We have a God who uses judgment to bring about justice, something we all long for. And lastly, if you were to think of this big idea, okay, because God sees injustice, we can trust he will bring judgment, we automatically put that off on other people. But what this means is that God sees all injustice and self-serving ways, even in the ways that we have pursued those means. Now, we might not have committed such egregious sins as Hophni and Finney has, but we have turned to self-serving ways at some point in our past that has hurt other people. And so we too, as seen against an eternal God, deserve eternal judgment, as hard as that is to hear. And we can trust that God will bring judgment. Judgment is a real thing, as we've seen. But thanks be to God that he doesn't leave us there. His grace does abound. And if you've grown up in the church, verse 26 here may have stood out to you. Sounds familiar. And that's because 1 Samuel chapter 2, 26 is almost identical to Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Luke 2 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Almost identical. At a time when Israel was waiting for their Messiah in the midst of the dark valley of Rome control, God had come down himself. He was growing. And it took 30 years. Again, the timing. We don't fully understand the timing and how he makes all the pieces fit but we see him working for 30 years in an unknown way before Jesus comes to fulfill his mission of dying for us. Now, as a God of love and judgment, the cross is where we see those two things come together. Right? Our God does forgive, and he wants to save his people as much as any parent would jump in front of a moving car to save their child within a heartbeat. But 
if all he did was forgive and say, I'm not going to do anything, then we would have a world of chaos, just like we see here in 1 Samuel 2. But at the cross, we see the forgiving aspect of God and also the justice aspect of God meet in a perfect way. So whatever we're going through, the deep valley, reminders, God's at work. He sees it. He's there with you. And as people who would call themselves Christians, we know that we don't have to experience this, ju- this judgment because Jesus has already taken it for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that your word is a word that gives us hope, that's honest with the depravity we see, that's honest with the dark valleys that we'll be walking through, but that's also honest in saying that there is hope, that you are at work, that you are working at a salvation greater than our words could ever explain or describe, or that our ears will ever fully understand. And may we look to that promise and that hope in the midst of our darkness as we go about this week. Amen.